Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, June 6th, and for this episode of Media Monday, John Kelly and I break down Joe Biden's media strategy, which seems to be changing as the midterms approach, and maybe with the new White House Chief of Staff coming on board. And we'll talk about Sheryl Sandberg's departure from Meta and her complicated journey from hero to villain to something in between. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Monday, everybody. And because it's Monday, it's Media Monday. I'm joined by our fearless leader, John Kelly, to talk about the media, which means pretty much everything, doesn't it, John? Including Joe Biden. <laughs> well, I think it means particularly Joe Biden, right? I mean, I, you know, the, the the older we get, Peter, the more we realize that um, the art of electoral politics is really a, a, a media game. Yes. And we are seeing that play out before our very eyes right now. This has been the case with Biden for a long time, but, it, you know, it flared during the campaign. It's flared since he's been in office where he is a creature of, the evening news and the front page of the newspaper and just for old media. And because of that, him and his team have had a hard time getting his face and his voice and his message in front of people on all screens at all times. And it's been a challenge, especially as his approval ratings have sunk going back to last summer. How has he been trying to fix the narrative? Tara Palmieri, our senior political correspondent in Washington, has a piece that went up last week basically suggesting that Anita Dunn, Longtime Obama Biden hand might be coming in to replace Ron Klain as chief of staff. And as part of that, she's like a message person. Like Klain is like a insider guy, make the trains run on time. Anita Dunn cares a lot about image, image making and getting messages out. And have you felt that her hand has been in Biden's media strategy in the last few weeks? Well, you know, I'm not a creature of Washington, but I'm always like aghast at how much truth there is to this sort of Aaron Sorkin vision of of how political offices run, where where there is a micro-focus on the narrative, on what's going on in the day, what's driving the day, all the sort of like Axios catchwords that we have been adapted, you know, have been adapted (laughs) to the culture. It's real. And Anita Dunn is, everything you said she is, she's also a lobbyist, like Ron Klain. And part of 
the stock and trade of lobbyists is, is getting attention. And I think in the, in the short time that she's been back in the White House for her recent tour, we have seen a demonstrably different Biden. It, you know, largely we've, we've seen Biden. And in the past week, we've seen these two op-eds, one in the journal about in, what he's doing to combat inflation, one in the Times about the support of Ukraine. We saw the a public address about uh, gun control, which quickly became a political issue. It actually seems as though that was a imperfectly delivered political spectacle. But we saw it in the public meeting with Jerome Powell, and we saw it on BTS, baby. <laughs> exactly. Sorry, that's a perfect example. BTS and and taking on Elon Musk. This doesn't seem like Biden. The Biden that people voted for was the cool, avuncular, senior, seasoned person who didn't need to play these media games. But it all appears to be an attempt to reclaim the narrative and say Biden is actually uh, front and center doing all these things. He was doing them all along, but now you can see him doing them. I don't know, man. It, it does seem a little desperate and, and contrived and maybe even forced to me. But what do you think? You, you were very close to the Obama-era White House where a lot of these senior Biden administration officials come from. What's your read on the evolution of the narrative here? I have two takes on this. One, I think the purest distillation of who Biden is and wants to be as a president was the quote-unquote bipartisan infrastructure bill because he was able to loop in some moderate Republican senators, get something very big done, and you know he did a round of positive press after that and was like, this is how deal-making should work. And I can simultaneously be a big FDR-style president and also like a bipartisan creature right. of the Senate who can repair America's fractured soul. <laughs> and so, yeah, in that context, attacking Elon Musk in a press briefing seems a little weird. I think he's willing to do it because one, obviously his, like, his poll numbers are down, but two, like he does have advisors around him too who are like really trying to like coach him into like reaching new audiences. And he tried this during the campaign. He did it in, in ways that felt natural to him. I remember talking to someone on the Biden campaign at one point and they were reminding me that like, yeah, it would look stupid if we put Biden on TikTok. Like that doesn't feel natural for him. They found opportunities that made sense for him to reach different audiences outside of the DC bubble. For example, they put him on like Jay Leno's like car show, right? <laughs> Again, that's not reaching young people, but it's reaching just like sure. sort of suburbanites and old folks and swing voters. They put him on my Snapchat show, right? That's a space where it's like, I'm a traditional political interviewer, but it's also on a platform where you're reaching Gen Z. Mm -hmm. And I've all, I also know, and I've, I wrote about this recently, that he's like been having meetings with pollsters about his shitty poll numbers among Gen Z and millennials. Right. Like it's his worst polling demo. If Anita Dunn and others in his digital and press team are like, hey man, you got to like really get out there, get outside of the Tom Friedman NBC Nightly News thing and like try some new stuff and take some big swings, like do it. The Elon thing was funny because, and just for context for people listening, Biden was asked in a press conference about Elon Musk basically telling Tesla that he has a bad feeling about the economy and he's going to cut staff at Tesla, do a hiring freeze. By the way, lots of companies are revising their expectations. Jamie Dimon said something similar. The economy isn't great. Purchasing power isn't good. But anyway, someone asked Biden about it. And he at first praised for GM and Chrysler and then like took a shit on Elon Musk by being like, I guess he's not going to the moon. It just feels like a little gimmicky, especially for like a president to make that comment in like a press conference about the economy, especially because Tesla is doing green cars. 
that's Elon's biggest beef, right? Is that like Biden doesn't treat Tesla the way he should because they're trying to green the economy and are the world's leader in green cars. And yet, because they're not unionized, Joe Biden doesn't like them. But he like keeps praise on Ford, GM, and Chrysler. Anyway, Biden says this thing about Elon and a bunch of DNC people, a bunch of White House people retweet it and they're like, slam, dude, get after it. Yeah, what's up? It's like, you can tell when campaigns are coordinating and sending out their talking points. And one person told me like mm-hmm. that Biden needs to show more strength. He hasn't looked strong. The message hasn't been clear. And they're like, as long as he's showing strength, it kind of doesn't matter if he's throwing punches. Like, punch somebody. Punch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Punch. And this person was also like, you're going to see more of this stuff coming in June. Biden is going to try to play a little more offense and be a little less, I want to bring the country together and a little more Republican suck. And like, here's how I'm trying to fix the country. That's interesting. Uh, I appreciate that privilege reporting. Well, one of the things that is fascinating to me is that there's so much to respect with Biden. And I think that at the end of the day, it's obviously impossible not to be sort of taken by his personal story, but to just find him a likable person. But we turn back the clock. We all recall that Biden was not a great candidate at the beginning of the cycle. In the same way he had not been a great national candidate in, in previous presidential cycles. And the thing that I'm detecting is that he is surrounded by a lot of very, very seasoned, experienced Obama-era people, meaning the best of the best on the left, and and also some of the toughest and most pugnacious political operatives on the left. And there are a lot of views here, including, I presume, Biden's own. And I think that that is leading to this slight alchemy where it's not consistent, where, you know, he spent the first part of his administration focusing on COVID and then focusing on infrastructure and doing it all very quietly in in back rooms and seemingly negotiating Mm -hmm. through Ron Klain. And now all of a sudden there's a burst of apparent energy and it seems inconsistent and it doesn't seem of a piece with the candidate that people elected. The timing and and the, the comment that you got from that staffer are interesting too because Biden is likely going to bear the brunt of a mess in the midterms. The economy is going to fall on his shoulders, even though he has made clear he's not going to influence Jerome Powell. It doesn't take a pollster to know that most people think that the president is responsible for the economy. And I just wonder if if these slightly reactive moves are going to be less persuasive than uh, larger, more significant messaging that we're going to face a tough time here as a country economically and still coming out of COVID. And we hope that we have someone who has a plan because that was why Biden won the election. Yeah, he had a clear, this is the thing, like he might not have been the world's greatest candidate, but he had a message. Mm. And like, that's why he won the primary. Other candidates did not have a message. Kamala Harris had no message. Elizabeth Warren had a message, then lost her message. Bernie and Biden had messages. Biden won the argument. Restore the soul of America. Not a policy plan, but an idea. And it was repeated over and over again consistently. And then he gets into office and you lose sight of that. But they have to change in some respects. Any president, any incumbent president in a midterm and a a reelect has to, this is the old saw, like make it a choice and not a referendum. If this election and the next one are a referendum on Joe Biden, he gets his fucking ass kicked. If it is a choice, well, that choice is this. Him throwing punches at Republicans and pointing to them and telling America why they are terrible and bad for your pocketbook and bad for culture. But the other piece, which they need to figure out, is what you just said. What's the other side of that contrast argument? Here is what I have done. Aforementioned infrastructure bill. That bill that the squad voted against, by the way, had more investment in green energy and and greening the economy than any bill in American history. You talk to Zoomers who care about climate change and like they don't know that. They've Mm -hmm. got to get these messages out there in addition to punching at Republicans because just saying ultra MAGA and running against Donald Trump isn't going to do it. 
They have to be have some kind of affirmative vision. You know, Obama did this in his reelect. He demonized Mitt Romney, but he also p- turned around and said, I saved the auto industry. Right. I gave homeowners this mortgage relief. I did X, Y, and Z. So there's like a, it's a tandem strategy. And so maybe, yeah, in June, we start to see him try to define Republicans, but they also need to figure out the affirmative message too. Yeah, you're right. And it's funny, as you're saying that, I I, um, I found myself triggered with, with memories of the Clinton 16 campaign, because that was another example where it seemed like a band was back together again. And there were all these advisors who'd worked together for all these years. And at the top, it was insular. There were uh, a number of you know people who were advising and, and over-advising to the point where there was a patina of inauthenticity. And I, I wonder if Klain's still in charge and with Anita Dunn in the building now again too, there are a lot of voices. And if someone wants to, whether it's Biden or someone else, wants to have a very clear dictum for what the midterms are going to be about, what 2024 is going to be about, it's got to be one voice. President Biden, Anita Dunn, Ron, Klain, if you're listening, um, the president is welcome on Media Mondays to talk media strategy. Right. It'll be great. If not, come on, come on. Good luck, America, my Snapchat show, and we'll talk to some Zoomers. This is going to change the narrative. <laughs> this will change. Uh, speaking of narratives that went from uh, good to bad, when we come back, we're going to talk about Sheryl Sandberg leaving Facebook. Meta. It's meta. It's Facebook. Meta. Meta. <laughs> Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right. I found that on Etsy. It's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad Bed Cooling System is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. 
This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me powers to get your Chili Pad and save up to $315 with code POWERS. This offer is available exclusively for Powers That Be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. All right, welcome back everyone, John. Um, Cheryl Sandberg last week announced, and a lot of people think she cravenly leaked this at the exact moment the verdict in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial came through, uh, that she's leaving Meta, nay Facebook. Uh, we don't know where she's going, but do you have any like big takes about her her tenure at Facebook? I mean, she became one of the obviously like most famous executives in the world, beloved for a long time at a time when tech was celebrated, uh, loathed more recently yeah. for enabling Mark Zuckerberg and this giant company to siphon people's data, <laughs> allow disinformation and hate speech to flourish. You know, she was there the whole time. More than the whole time. I mean, when you, when you think back on what her tenure there looked like, she joined in 2008 when it was a private company. It had revenues in, I think, a couple hundred million dollars. It's now got a market cap of $500 billion. You know, and in, in their S1, when they went public in 2012, she was listed as one of the two key people, which is very, very, not, I want to say very, very rare, but that's unusual. Normally the founder or the CEO is listed as the, the key person. My experience, Peter, with massively successful ultra high net worth people is that they are not always the most psychologically in touch with their own feelings. And I, I think the zillion dollar question that we all have is, does Sheryl Sandberg have guilt or personal accountability about the various scandals, Cambridge Analytica just being one of the most recent, the information that Francis Haugen unearthed about what Facebook may have known about Instagram being dangerous and, and not doing enough about it. When you become that sort of success machine, you learn to compartmentalize a lot. And so I don't think that there is a compelling inner life. Like, I don't, I don't think that she's going to be the subject of like a Curtis Sittenfeld novel about what, what Cheryl really thought all along about what a bizarre partner and, and maniac Mark Zuckerberg really was. I, I think that she probably, you know, closed a lot of that off and, and focused on, on running the business. In terms of her legacy, this is just a, a, a hunch and a suspicion of mine. I, I do think that she actually probably wanted to leave this company many, many times. Uh -huh. we, we forget how phenomenally wealthy she was. And when you're that wealthy, and when so much of your wealth is tied to stock, you have all the freedom in the world and you can do whatever you want. And, and at a certain point from 2016 on, she was really going from scandal to scandal to scandal. And I can't imagine that she enjoyed doing that. And it sounds like in you know, 2018, according to, to Dylan's reporting, things got really tense personally with, with her and Zuckerberg. Mm -hmm. I think that they, I think they were always tighter than people give them credit for. They were partners and they shared a foxhole. But I have to assume that like many successful people, she had a third act planned for herself that could have been any number of things. It, at one time, it seemed like it was going to be politics. She seemed like a natural 
Treasury Secretary under a, a putative Clinton administration. Obviously, that didn't that didn't work out. But that's the past now. She she has no political future to speak of, and she'll easily go down as one of the the most controversial executives of the last fifty years. But she's fifty two years old and has a lot of time and a lot of money, and people forget how short the collective imagination is. I think Cheryl's going to be just fine, Peter. I was cleaning out a bunch of old books the other day, and I came across like an old hardback of Lean In, which I never read. <laughs> but it just like felt like this like time capsule from yeah. this like pre-Trump era where, first of all, like female-driven identity politics that culminated in Lena Dunham speaking at Hillary's convention in 2016. She was so celebrated, puff piece on 60 Minutes, could she be president one day? You know, and this coincided with Obama speaking at Google during his campaigns, Mark Zuckerberg and Cory Booker hanging out. Like tech was just like yeah. in its heyday in that like 2009 to 2015 era, you know? And then obviously Trump wins, Facebook is exposed for being like opaque and reactive and like lots of bad shit went down to Facebook. And it was just like, this feels quaint, this book, Lean In, how quaint. <laughs> but I do think that like also exposed that people are complicated the world is not black and white just because someone is like an empowered woman, an empowered person of color, progressive, whatever, like doesn't necessarily mean they're like a good actor. Like you're a businessman or a woman. You're accumulating lots of stock and working for a giant, complicated, sometimes terrible company. It is certainly the end of an era. We'll see who steps in to replace her as Mark Zuckerberg's biggest confidant. What's interesting too is that there is this constant need among all of us to moralize with her and I'm not trying to in any way like assuage some of the blame that she bears personally or that Facebook bears for through these through these various scandals. Um, I was at a dinner in Silicon Valley right after Trump won. And I was sitting next to a very, very, very senior executive uh, at Facebook. And I met Mark Zuckerberg, who, who thought I was somebody else. He shook my hand. But this senior Facebook executive misconstrued me as a very important person as a result, <laughs> thinking that his, you know, seeing his boss uh, <laughs> shake my hand. And... This person said to me, so are you going to, um, and he said this jokingly, so are you going to blame us for, uh, for the election now? And it's still in a very raw period after Trump won. And I just let it like hang there for a second because obviously he was being defensive, but I could tell genuinely that he didn't seem to understand why such a large swath of the public felt that, that the company was so culpable. And for just a moment, I realized, aha, that must be sort of the corporate mentality that drives decision-making at the elite level of the company. This person was not Sheryl Sandberg, I should say, but that there is a highly compartmentalized, we must compete with Google, we have to manage the stock price, we have to worry about the business, and we're going to tune out criticism. That was just a requirement of getting business done there. And so I wonder if she was a, if she was a victim of that or if she was the person who created that culture. And then just one last thought too, this is, I'm stealing a point from that Kara Swisher always makes on Pivot whenever Scott Galloway goes after Sheryl Sandberg and criticizes her significantly. Mm -hmm. Kara always says, but don't forget, Mark's a guy who was ultimately in charge too. And it's easy to lose sight of that as well. That's right. And Scott Galloway needs to be reined in every now and then. <laughs> every right, now Kara? and then. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> every now and then. You guys are listening. <laughs> it's, it's entertaining, nonetheless. All right. Have a good week, John. All right, you too, Peter. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. 
Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.